0: A very warm welcome to Daily Power Parsha. This is our daily look at the parsha, the Torah portion, Wednesday, July 13, 2022. And Torah portion this week is Balak. Balak, named after probably the second greatest villain of this week's Torah portion. It's very interesting. It's like we named the Torah portion after a villain. But we're not gonna name it after Balaam, who's like the big villain on campus. It's Balak who hired him. All right. He's like a supporting role, like second villain. He's like not the main villain, he's like at the Oscars I believe have an award for this. It's like best supporting villain in a biblical drama. That award goes to who would be the nominees? Well, Balak obviously, we got that guy. Who else would be a nominee for that? I don't know. All right. We, oh, not the view, maybe. Because, you know, Korach and then they were the other guys. Who else? Okay, we'll have to figure this out. Maybe we'll do, uh, we'll do an Oscars broadcast one day. A spoof Oscars for the Bible. Um, Torah Oscars. Okay, let's jump in. Now that that's out of the way, let's jump into the Torah reading for today. Let's break ground. Uh, This is reading number four. Okay, reading number four. And, because it's Wednesday. So that's, right, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday is reading four. Day four, reading four. And now we get into the blessings. Well, Balaam is trying to curse, but they come out as blessings. Let's read that inside. So Balaam went with Balak. Yeah, where we left the story yesterday is that Balaam finally consented to go with the messengers of Balak, the king. And on the journey, Then the angel stands in the road and blocks the way of the donkey. The donkey turns off into a field and then rubs against the wall and then stops full stop. And Balam gets angry. He beats the donkey three times. Um, The donkey speaks to him and says, what are you doing? He says, you're not listening. You're not going there. He's like, have I ever, she says, have I ever disobeyed you? He's like, well, actually, at that point, his eyes open. He sees the angel with a sword and he realizes Okay, that's what's going on. And he apologizes and uh, continues on his journey. And then, of course, the king and the prophet, they meet. And now he's going together with the king, is, And they arrive at Kiryat Chutzot, which literally means a city of streets. Okay, trivia question. We just mentioned city of streets. If I say to you the word, the phrase, city of bridges, city of bridges, what comes to mind? What is which city has the most bridges in the world? Which city has the most bridges in the world? Go, unmute and jump in. Venice. Venice, uh, Venice. Okay. What else? What else? Sarah, what did you say? Prague. Prague. I was thinking. I was thinking canals. What are you? But you're saying bridges. So bridges. Bridges. Straight up bridges. Yeah. Venice. Prague. Prague. Here's the answer. The answer will shock you. (laughs) My wife still doesn't believe believe it's true. The city with the most bridges in the world is Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. (laughs) Classic, classic. City of, now hold on, I'm gonna fact check myself because I think that was correct. Um, City, most bridges in world. Please be correct, otherwise I have to retract. The five cities with the most bridges. Here we go, Venice. Ooh. Oh, wait, 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 wait. Okay, this is great. Um, should I bring you into this? Why not? Let us just let me share this. We'll just go through this. This has nothing to do with the Power Show, by the way. But that's how we roll in DPP. Okay, so here we go. Venice, Italy has 391 bridges. Very good. Pittsburgh has 446. Heyo. New York. Whoa, I was wrong. 789. I was so wrong. Amsterdam, 1281. Not even close. Hamburg, Germany, 2300. Okay, so clearly, clearly, my. Clearly, Leia is correct. Clearly, Leia is correct. Clearly, my facts are wrong. What's crazy is that in Pittsburgh, this is stated as a fact that you learn when you grow up that Pittsburgh has the most bridges. And I feel like I've Googled it before and I've corroborated it. And it's funny. That it seems to not be correct, although still looking for a recount. Someone stole the count from Pittsburgh, so we're going to look to uh, create a recount. I'm going to call the Secretary of State. We'll try to get that going. All right, back to our back to our story. So this is this is the city of streets, Kiryat Chutzot, that the King and the Prophet walk arm in arm to. So now Balak. The king slaughtered cattle and sheep and sent some to Balaam and to the dignitaries with him. And in the morning, Balak took Balaam and led him up to Barnoth Baal. No, that's not Barnoth. Bamot. Can't read. I don't know the number of bridges and I also cannot read accurately today. Great, two for two. Bamot Baal. And from there, he saw a part of the people. Let me explain what's going on. They first offered some offerings to get God, you know, buttered up. And then he led him to the top of a mountain or a hill. A mountaintop, probably a mountaintop. Mountaintop, where he was able to look out and see the encampment of the Jewish people. Remember, the Jewish people were encamping on their journeys. And then they now went to a, an overlook mountain, kind of overlooking that encampment. Let's continue. Balaam said to Balak, Build me seven altars here on top of the mountain. And prepare for me seven bulls and seven rams. I need an altar. It's like an altar, a flat platform. And seven bulls, seven altars, seven bulls, seven rams. Bullock did as Balaam had requested. And Bullock and Balaam offered up a bull and a ram on each of the seven altars. Balaam, the prophet, said to Bullock the king, stand beside your burnt offering and I will go. There's you wait here and I'm going to wander. Perhaps the Lord will appear to me and he will show me something that I can tell you. And he went alone. So imagine the scene. They're on top of the mountain. They're building altars. They offer a bull and a ram on each one. The prophet says to the king, you wait here. And he wanders off. Well, God did reply to this. uh, uh, God did um, turn to this. Situation, God chanced upon Balaam. And Balaam said to God, I have set up the seven altars and I've offered up a bull and a ram on each altar. Just letting God know what's going on. By the way, I brought you some animals. The Lord placed something at the Balaam's mouth. Basically, Balaam was looking for the opportunity to curse. And so God gave him what to say. And he said, return to Balak and say as follows. And of course, God told him what to say. I don't know if he told him what to say as much as he put the words into his mouth, right? Where Balam could not say anything but what God had made him say. I always think of that scene from The Matrix. The theme of from The Matrix where they bring in um, Neo. My uh, Is anybody with you on this? Matrix? We did a course on The Matrix. Some months ago. great course. Anyway, so in the beginning, yeah, in the beginning of the movie, they bring in, so the guy, the hacker guy who will later become known as Neo, so they bring him in for questioning. The bad guys bring him in for questioning, and he doesn't want to speak, or he's speaking, they don't like what he's saying, or something like that, and they basically do something that his mouth closes. It's very freaky. It's a weird scene. Like, his mouth, he can't speak, and it's like horrific situation. Anyway, along these lines, but not at all, is uh, what God does to Balaam where he basically puts his words in his mouth. And uh, Balaam can't say anything but what God tells him to say. And God tells him, go back to Balak and say what I tell you. So when he returned, Balak was standing next to his burnt offering, he and all the Moabite dignitaries. So you had the king and the high-ranking officials still by the altars waiting for the prophet's return. So Balaam took up his parable and said. Now, what that means, took up his parable, you're going to see that throughout this parsha. Every time he begins to say something, it says he took up his parable. What that means is that he spoke in a very poetic, metaphorical, uh, parabolic, I don't know, whatever, parable uh, way of speaking. So it's not going to be straightforward. It's going to be kind of like... You know, illusionary. It's very um, allu- with an A at the beginning, like very, like a lot of hints and and allusions to things. He said the following: Balak, the king of Moab, has brought me from Aram, from the mountains of the east, saying, "Come, curse Jacob for me, and come, invoke wrath against Israel." That's that's the terms of the of the deal, right? That's the contract. However, he says, "How can I curse whom God has not cursed?" And how can I invoke wrath if the Lord has not been angered? This is beautiful. You see what he's saying? He's saying, you're asking me to curse the Jewish people. How can I curse a nation whom God has not cursed? How can I invoke wrath if God is not angry? For from their beginning, and this is, again, it's very much um, non-literal. It's very much an allegory or a metaphor or a parable. For from their beginning I see them. I see the Jewish people as mountain peaks. And I behold them as hills. It is a nation that will dwell alone and will not be reckoned among the nations. Who counted the dust of Jacob or the number of a fourth of or the seed of alternative translation of Israel. May my soul die the death of the upright and let my end be like his. Right there. One, two, three, four. Four verses, or three and a half verses, of Balaam's blessings. He was supposed to curse the people, but he says, that you hire me to curse, how can I curse? How can I invoke wrath, if God's not on board? I see them as mountain peaks, as hills. They dwell alone, not reckoned amongst the nations, who counted the dust and the seed of Israel, dust of Jacob, seed of Israel, May my soul die the death of the upright and let my end be like his. Sounds like he's saying, basically, I wish I would be like them and I'm going to curse them. Now, clearly, this little uh, diatribe or monologue was not cursing the Jewish people, it was complimentary to the Jewish people. So Balak said to Balaam, the king said to the prophet, What have you done to me? I took you to curse my enemies, but you have blessed them. What are you doing? Bro, did you not read the contract? I mean, like, what's going on here? So the prophet answered, saying, what the Lord puts into my mouth, that I must take care to say. I can't say anything other than what God has put in my mouth to speak. I'm not speaking of my own desire. I'm channeling God's message. And that's the message that has come to me. That's the end of the reading. There is so much to talk about. We're going to use Rashi as a launching point, and then I'm going to get into what Kabbalah and Hasidic philosophy um, add to the conversation. But let's start off with Rashi. First thing we need to know is that they... First thing we learn in this, in this reading is that they arrive together at a place called Kiriachutzot, a city of streets. Rashi, a city full of markets. Streets meaning markets. The Shuk. Anybody familiar with the Shuk? Has anybody ever been to the Shuk? in Israel, shook the marketplace, full of streets, markets, hustling and bustling, Rashi says, with men, women, and children in its streets. Why did he take them there? Rashi is if to say, see, and have pity, so that all these people are not annihilated. He was trying to The king was trying to get the prophet on board with the plan. So he says, come, look at the hustling, bustling cities of Moab. And the Jewish people will destroy everything unless you can curse them. That was, he was selling him on the project, getting buy-in for this plan. Brilliant, if you ask me. Well, it didn't work, but brilliant idea, at least. Bullock slaughter cattle and sheep, Rashi, a small number Only one bull and one sheep. Okay? Bamot Baal. He took him up to Bamot Baal. uh, Rashi says, as the Targum understands it, to the heights of his deity. Baal being the name of a deity. Bamot means the height, Baal, of a deity. But uh, the truth is, he also took him on top of a hill or mountaintop to look out over the people. But anyway, Baal is uh, is the infamous... Um, idol, Baal is the infamous idol. Um, of all the idols that are discussed in rabbinic literature, I don't know of an idol that is more bizarre in its worship than Baal. We've talked about it before. The person relieves themselves in front of in, in, in front of the in front of the idol. So it's a very bizarre idol, but it's what it's what was in vogue at the time. And um, so it seems like somehow he took him to the heights of Baal. I don't know if he took him into that experience of worshiping the Baal or to a place where they worship Baal on top of the mountain. I'm not sure exactly what Rashi means, but to the heights of the deity means something, Rashi is saying. It means something. We would have to look at commenters on Rashi itself, but there's some sort of interesting message there. I will also say that by the end of the Torah portion, this is a very important point, after Balaam's curses have not been successful three times. So he gives him advice to send the young women to entice the Jewish men into sin. And uh, the way that worked, as we'll, explain, as we'll see at the end of the Torah portion, is that they said, if you want to um, consummate this uh, encounter, then you will worship the idol, and the idol of, 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 was, uh, was the Baal. Um, So clearly here, the Baal, the idolatry, is from the beginning to the end of the story. Let's get back inside. Um, Okay, so they built seven altars, seven bulls, seven rams. Balaam says, wait here, I'm going to wander. Perhaps the Lord will happen to appear to me, Rashi. He is not accustomed to speak to me by day. If you recall, I mentioned this a few days ago. I mentioned this, I think, on Monday. And that is that God appeared to Balaam typically at night in the form of a dream. That's why he said to the messengers that came to fetch him to do this job from the beginning, that's why he said to them, wait overnight and tomorrow morning I'll let you know because God would come to him at night in the vision of a dream. In this case, it was the middle of the day. So he says, perhaps God will, appear, will happen to appear to me. So what's the perhaps? It's not a guarantee, because God is not accustomed to speak to me by day. So hopefully it's going to work out. And he went alone. Yeah, Targum renders alone. The term denotes ease and quietness, that he was accompanied by nothing but silence. The sound of silence. Who sings that song? Sound of silence. Simon and Garfunkel. Simon and Garfunkel. Excellent. Yes. You know who else does a great cover for it? if you guys have a chance to listen to this Shulam lemmer Shulam lemmer s-h-u-l-e-m Shulam lemmer l-e-m-e-r maybe two m's one m he's a great singer sony actually picked him up on a contract a few years ago he covers some songs including sound of silence it's or whatever the song is actually called that's really beautiful um i've heard him do it in concert it's it's quite lovely so anyway, but Balaam goes alone, and it's quiet, silent. Perfectly still moment to uh, uh, to try to you know capitalize on, to, to try to um, evoke God's communication. So God chanced upon Balaam, Rashi. And this is Vayikar. Vayikar is chanced, an expression denoting a casual meaning or occurrence. And it denotes something shameful, an expression used for uncleanness caused by... Seminal emission carry interesting as if to, we learned about carry right. Remember we learned about different types of bodily um, impurity and we learned about a man's seminal emission how that would be would render one impure to need to go to mikveh. Um and that carry is related to the word vayikar. In fact, if you look at the word vayikar, if you take out the vav, okay, because the vav is end, but you take a look at yikar and just switch around the letters, you have Kofreish yud. Kerry, okay, same same letters, basically. As if to say, God appeared to him with reluctance and with contempt. He would never appear to him by day, but he wanted to show his love for Israel. It's God, it's God's like, all right, I guess I'll show up and meet with this guy and put blessings in his mouth. But basically, God did not want to meet him. This was not a desirable thing. Um, give you an example. Give you an example. Okay, you ready for this? Um, you know, there are certain people that you... Um, So like certain situations where you're meeting with somebody and you're like, you have a plan, you have to set up a meeting and you meet with them and it's great and you, it's wonderful. Then certain times like you're, you're trying to not meet with somebody, but then like you're walking down the street and then you see them and they cross the street and you're like, all right, I guess we're meeting. Right. You know what I'm talking about? Yes. Never happened. But yeah, you're trying to. I'm mean, theoretically not that it should actually happen, but theoretically, right? Like, so it's a chance encounter that maybe you're not really looking forward to, but like you bumped into that person. And you're like, okay, I guess we're, we're going to have a conversation. So it's kind of like that is what happens between God and Balaam. It's not like God is like, yes, I'm so excited to meet with this guy. This guy is an evil guy. He's a corrupt, corrupt prophet, but God, you know, meets with him, kind of chances upon him. Obviously nothing's by chance, but like, encounters him in a way that's less than willing. Why? To bless the Jewish people, but really God is not interested in a um, rendezvous with this guy. All right, let's continue. Seven altars. I prepared seven altars. It's not written here, but this, the seven altars. Aha, Balaam said to God, the patriarchs built seven altars before you, and I have prepared seven corresponding to them all. In other words, I'm trying to counteract your love for them with your love for me. Um, uh, where, where the seven Abraham built four. okay, let's, we'll we'll keep a running tally. Um, there he built an altar, Abraham moved him there to the mountain and built an altar. Abraham pitched his tent and built an altar there and one on Mount Moriah. Okay. So Abraham built four, Isaac built one. He built an altar there. Jacob built two, one in Shechem and one in Bethel. So Rashi here lists all seven So Balaam knows that the the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, built seven. So he's saying, I also built seven kind of to counteract their seven and maybe to like flip the affinity of God away from the Jewish people. I offered up a bull and a ram on each altar, whereas Abraham offered up only a ram. Basically, don't you love me more, God? Balaam is really saying. Okay, next, um, he comes back. So God says, sure, but you're only going to say what I tell you to say. And then he comes back to the king, Balak does, and begins the the, uh, the monologue. He says, uh, you told me, come curse Jacob for me and come invoke wrath against Israel. He told him to curse them with your two names, right? Curse Jacob and invoke wrath against Israel. So Jacob and Israel. Why did Balak the king specify both names? Because he told them to curse them their two names, for perhaps one of them was not their distinctive one. So if he only said Jacob, well, maybe they're Israel. If he only said Israel, maybe they're Jacob. So he said Jacob and Israel. That way, all the bases would be covered. Well, that was the intent, as Balaam recounts. But that's not what. That's not what. That is not what is going to happen. How can I curse whom God has not cursed? Even when they deserve to be cursed, they were not cursed. Namely when their father Jacob recalled their iniquity by saying, For in their wrath they killed a the man. He cursed only their wrath, as it says, Cursed be the wrath. Now, if you recall. This is on yeah, curse be the wrath. I love hyperlinks on Chabad What a great little system there. This is at the end of right? End of the end of the book of uh how come i going say the Torah portion? It's so weird. This is the end of the book of Genesis. This is when Yaakov, when Jacob is on his deathbed. And he, and he, uh, I was going to say blesses, but not all of them. He um, speaks to all of his children. And so he calls in Shimon and Levi. And he says, curse be their wrath. And Rashi now points out that Balaam is, uh, that, that it's only their wrath should be cursed. He never says that they should be cursed. Even when they... Remember, they were the ones that uh, that that killed the man. They 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 um, Shechem, They 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 wiped out a city. That when when Deen, when their sister was abducted, they wiped out the city of Shem And Jacob was not happy. And then they were the ones that were behind the uh, the kidnapping of of Joseph and getting rid of Joseph. He wasn't happy with that either. So they don't get overt blessings on their fathers from their father on his deathbed. They get a curse. But as Rashi points out here. It says, cursed be their wrath. It doesn't say, cursed be them. It's their wrath. What does that mean? That means, um, even when they deserve to be cursed, they were not cursed. Even when they did something wrong, they don't get cursed. Only their wrath, the the, the anger that, that, that drove them to do that, that's what's cursed. When their father, Jacob, came in deceit to his father, Isaac, he deserved to be cursed. But what does it say there? He too shall be blessed. <laughs> Right? Jacob steals the blessings. Does he get cursed? Nope. He gets a blessing. Regarding those who blessed, it says, that these shall stand to bless the people. Or regarding those who cursed, it does not say, these shall stand to curse the people, but these shall stand for the curse. For God does not, did not want to mention the word curse in reference to the people. What we see here, and this is such a beautiful Rashi, and I hope it's making sense. Uh, I hope I'm expressing this and articulating it at least somehow, somewhat coherently. It's such a, such a beautiful idea And this is what Balaam is telling Balak. How can I curse the people whom God has not cursed? Even when they deserve, God forbid, deserve to be cursed. The Torah never says, you are cursed. It never says that about the Jewish people. It never says that. It says the wrath should be cursed. It says these are standing for the curse. Not that you are cursed. It never says that. It never puts curse and and the Jewish people in proximity. Never happens. How can I evoke anger or wrath if the Lord has not been angered? I myself, the prophet says, am powerless, except that I can determine the precise moments when God becomes angry, and He has not become angry all these days since I have come to you. This is the meaning of the same. And people remember now what Balak planned and what Balaam answered him, and you recognize the. Righteous. Okay, basically, Balaam says I can't make God angry. I can only know or align with the time that God's angry, and then kind of throw the one, the target of the anger under the bus. But God's not angry at the Jewish people. So what am I supposed to do? I can't make him angry. Um, okay, then he launches into this very poetic state. It was really beautiful. From their begin. from, oh, interesting. Again, I, I wish some, uh, maybe I should do it, but if anybody wants to ever do this, send in edits to Chabad.org, I'm sure they would appreciate it. In the English translation, it says, for from their beginning. And here it says, for from its beginning. So it's, Versus there. I'm just saying there is a discrepancy in the translation of the verse and the translation of the verse as it appears in the header of Rashi. I'm just saying, I'm sure Chabad would be happy to amend that. Um, if somebody wants to send it in. From its beginning or from their beginning, I see them as mountain peaks. Rashi, I look at their origins and the beginning of their roots. Right? That means their beginning. And I see them established and powerful like these mountains and hills because of their patriarchs and matriarchs. If you look at the, at the verse... From their beginning, I see them as mountain peaks and behold them as hills. What does that mean? From their beginning means when I look at the people, I don't see a people here. I see their predecessors. I see their ancestors. And I see mountain peaks. And I see hills. Well, who are the mountain peaks and who are the hills? The patriarchs. The matriarchs. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, and Leah. Right? These are the giants of the giants that... Um, spawned this nation. It is a nation that will dwell alone. Rashi. This is the legacy their forefathers gained for them to dwell alone. As the Tiger Monocles renders, it is a nation that is alone destined to inherit the world. Uh, You should know that a nation that will dwell alone is a very powerful concept and a very misunderstood concept. I forget which uh, prime minister or president of Israel it was, um, who was trying to normalize relations between Israel and the world community by giving concessions, including concessions of land, etc. And the Rebbe was famously very much against any deals of land for peace for many reasons. Number one, I just, this is not about Israel right now, but I'll just make it quickly about Israel. Number one, the Rebbe said, God gave you a gift. How are you giving it away? How are you re-gifting? What's up with that? Somebody gives you a gift, you don't give it away. That's not, it's rude. Especially if they're standing right there. God's still standing right here, right? So that's it's rude. Number one, number two. What is this business? land for peace? What's peace? Well, what? What? You're, you're giving something tangible for what? What's peace? Who? It's a promise. It's a word. It's a handshake. It's a it's a document. Who's backing it? You're giving something tangible, something real for what? I mean, I'll sell you the Eiffel Tower. Centurion, did I tell you the story? I read. Um, I don't know if I thought, I listened to a podcast. I try not to read, I'm kidding. But I listened to a podcast and it was about this, I think a Jewish guy. Like a straight up one of the greatest con artists of the, of the 20th century. This was, I think, the 1930s. Apparently, France was not so keen on the Eiffel Tower. For whatever reason, it was like not, not, not such a beloved uh, national treasure as it is today. Maybe it is, maybe it's not. I don't know what it is today either. But apparently then it was not so favorable. And so this guy basically forges like um, government documents and puts out the word to a bunch of uh, metal scrap contractors basically saying that that the government is getting rid of the Eiffel Tower. It's very hush hush because we're doing like, you know, we haven't told the people yet, but it's like coming from like an official office with a sign on it with the, you know, stamped and signed. And, you know, we're getting rid of the Eiffel Tower and we're looking for bids, you know, who will take it down and, and 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 pay for the metal. And so they had four people and he goes up, he puts on like some suit and whatever takes them up in the Eiffel Tower shows them around. This guy like really faked it and he got some wealthy guy, the four bits came in, he got the, he, and he collected money, like, I don't know, $30,000 or, or whatever it was, whatever the currency was. He got like a decent amount of money for this and then skipped town. My point is, well, I don't even know what my point is. Well, what was I talking about here? Eiffel Tower, hold on. I will remember. Oh, oh, yeah, 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 land for peace. So you're giving, like, what are you giving? You're selling the AFL. like, what are you s- You're giving land for what? A promise? Who's gonna back that? Who's gonna back the promise on that side? Who's gonna say, I take responsibility that there will no longer be any more terrorists? Who's gonna take that responsibility? Who can take the responsibility? Who is authorized to take the final responsibility that there will be peace on that side? Which government? Which individual? Who's going to take responsibility? The Rebbe said, "Giving land for peace is crazy." Now, again, hold on, hold on. I know we're talking about Israel now, and it gets very, it could get very intense. I'm not. I'm just reporting the Rebbe's position. Now, this uh, this prime minister or president—I forget who it was—back in the '60s or '70s, one of them, so um, was saying to the Rebbe that the goal is to normalize. Relationships so that Israel is not isolated in the world. You with me on this? They want to normalize so that Israel is not isolated in the world community. So the Rebbe said Jews and Israel being isolated is actually, on some level, is also a blessing. And where do we see this? Right here. Right here in this reading. Right? It is a nation that will dwell alone. That's not a curse. And Balaam wanted a curse to people, but these are the blessings. It is a nation that will dwell alone is a blessing. They will dwell alone. That means they don't have to be like everyone else. They can remain distinct. Not everyone's going to like it, and that's okay also. Hein am levadad yishkon is God's blessing to the Jewish people. It's not the curse. Yeah, and that's the legacy their forefathers gained for them, to dwell alone. And will not be reckoned among the nations. The Targum paraphrases, they will not perish along with the other nations. For it says, for I shall make an end of all the nations. This is referring, of course, to the future time. They will not be reckoned with the rest. So when, we don't really believe in like Armageddon and end of the world, but like, you know, when ultimately things shift and pivot, so the Jewish people will be in a unique position. Another interpretation, when they rejoice, no other nation rejoices with them. As it says, God alone will guide them to future happiness. And when the nations prosper, they will receive a share with each one of them, but it will not be deducted from their account. This is the meaning of and will not be reckoned among the nations. All right, let's, let's move on. Um, who can count? The, the, the blessing continues. Who can count the dust of Jacob? Uh, what does that mean? As the Targum renders the children of the house of Jacob. Words, who can count the Jewish people? I mean, it sounds like the Jewish people will be so numerous. All right. That's up for debate. <laughs> we don't have the, not that many of us, but okay. Um, who can count the children of the house of Jacob? Concerning whom it is stated, they shall be as many as the dust of the earth, or one of the four camps, referring to the four divisions. Another, that means the four camps, the encampments of the Jewish people, north, east, south, west, or east, south, west, north, as it was described in Torah. Another interpretation, the dust of Jacob is the number of mitzvot, ah, they fulfill with dust, are innumerable. The number of mitzvot they do with the earth, dust is earth. All right, who can count? Who can count the dust, the number of mitzvot? What are the mitzvot that are done with the dust? You shall not plow with an ox and a donkey together, you shall not sow your field with a mixture of seeds, the ashes of the red cow, the red heifer, the dust used for a woman's respect of infidelity, and others similar to these. So here are all these mitzvot and many more that are done with dust or forms of dust, earth and ashes, etc. So these are all things that are referenced or alluded to and who can count. Oh, look at this, another discrepancy. Who counted or who can count the dust of Jacob? Who counted or can count? If anybody is interested in sending a letter to the editor, counted, can count. Discrepancy central. Okay, next. Or the mixture of the seed of, that denotes their copulations, the seed which issues from sexual intercourse. In other words, the idea is who can count the descendants, the progeny? There will be a number of them. May my soul die the death of the upright among them. Balaam says, the prophet says, I wish I were a Jew. And that is the ultimate compliment. Balaam says he wishes he was Jewish. He wants to be part of the part of the tribe. Holy cow, Balak says, what are you doing? What's wrong with you? You've, uh, you, you, you were supposed to curse them, and you're blessing them. You wanna be like them. Who are you? And what have you done with the real evil prophet? And he tells him, what do you want? Whatever God tells me to say, that's what I say. I told you that from the beginning. Told you that from the beginning. Okay, so that is, that's Rashi. And I want to speak about a few ideas here. I spoke about the idea of being alone and how powerful that is. It's powerful to be alone. And I just want to, um, I just want to uh, um, emphasize that one more time. You know, oftentimes we think that Life is a popularity contest. So if I'm not popular, then it's not a good thing. Judaism holds dear the the idea that we don't... What's popular is not always right, and what's right is not always popular. It's a very important uh, motto. Motto? Um, To live with. Life motto. Very important. It's a good bumper sticker. Put it on your mirror, right? What's Popular is not always right, and what's right is not always popular. You are going to have, God tells us, Moses tells us, Balaam tells us, <laughs> right, in this. You are going to have a unique mission in this world. Very unique. The rest of the world has seven laws. The Jew has 613. It's a lot. It's a lot. You have a unique role within the world including to be a light into the nations. This is a very unique role and task. And God tells, sorry, and and here we have from the mouth of of an evil dude, right? From Balaam, a hater of the Jews. He's saying, you guys are unique. You guys stand out. You guys are alone. You have your unique purpose. I think, you know, part of the human condition is everyone wants to be unique. Right? Everyone kind of wants to stand out and not be like everyone else. I can't say everyone, maybe some people like to blend in. You know, but I think a lot of people, a lot of us like to be unique, stand out, have a voice, have a unique take on things, original. Judaism is like the ultimate. It's like the ultimate originality, it's the ultimate uniqueness, the ultimate stand out. Right? You don't need to wear a costume. It's like it's it's loud. Judaism is loud. It's like, "Hey, look, we got all this different stuff." Rosh Hashanah, we have ram's horns. Yom Kippur, we're fasting for 24 hours. You know, Sukkot, we build huts. Yeah, there's always a thing. There's always a thing. We're very unique. Unique. We've done courses like Judaism's Gifts to the World in the past that have uh, expressed some unique Jewish values that ultimately have gone viral or have caught on in the rest of the world. But... For most of its history, Judaism has been, and still today in many ways, is very unique and very original thinking. It's like, you know, Torah is 3,300 years old. And a document from 3,300 years ago, you would think, would be very dated. Like super dated. 3,300? I mean, the Constitution, think about the, the U.S. documents. Right? The Constitution. How far does the Constitution go back? Two hundred years, no, seventeen seventy-six, right, or whatever, 1700s. eighteen ninety, yeah, two hundred fifty years. Is our country two hundred fifty years old? Is that is that am I correct there? It's about two hundred fifty years old. I'm assuming yes. Anyway, the point is two hundred fifty years. Already, we're talking about how to understand amendments and how to you know reinterpret things and figure stuff out in the courts, you know, whatever, all that stuff. But here's here's the point. A document, imagine a document, a life document, legal document, 3,334 years old. By all accounts, it should be super archaic, super dusty, and remain on the shelf. And yet, the contrary is true. Judaism, Torah, is as alive and vibrant today as it ever was. In fact, there are some ideas in Judaism that make more sense today than ever before. Shabbat never made more sense. Shabbat, a day of rest, never in history made more sense than in 2022. Tell me a time in history that you needed on every level, physically, emotionally, psychologically, spiritually. Tell me when in history you needed more of a break and a disconnect and unplug. From, literally unplugged I'm, I'm from everything, than, than, than right now, 2022. Shabbat is, has never been more important, etc. We can keep on going. The point is that Judaism is alone. Jewish values are unique. Shabbat is one of those examples of a value that was very strange to the world for a long time. Even till today, it's very strange yeah there's no work on the people have off from work on the weekends, but it's not Shabbat that's not Shabbat. You don't go into the office that's not Shabbat. Shabbat is a much deeper dive into serenity that's not not going into the office on Saturday and Sunday does not equal the serenity of Shabbat and the the healing of Shabbat. Shabbat is way deeper. I mean, you're talking about dusting versus like wet dry vac, the companies that you spend thousands of dollars to go in, you know, right? I'm just giving an analogy here, right? This is like a much deeper thing. This is like Sandrine on the beach. This is like, this is like that level of of just, you know, physical detox. It's like just plugging into nature and God and family and community and spirituality and beauty. And just, that's it. That's what Shabbat is. So what I'm saying, what I'm trying to say is, that the world still hasn't caught up, and the world still thinks that Jews are a bit meshuggev. Shabbos, Pfft. you guys are nuts. Shabbos. It's like I, sometimes things go, things get a little uh, wonky. You know, a light goes off. Food, you know, sometimes you need to call in someone, call in some backup to help. You know, we find someone on the street, say, "Hey, can you help us out with some lights?" Doesn't happen often. It happens once in a while. Rare occasion. Like. What well, it's the Jewish Sabbath and I can't really and I can't turn on the light So I was wondering if you could help me then they like okay I always find somebody with two people because I don't want anyone to feel like a little weirded out that like they're being they just like just come on in bring your dogs. It's all good. Come on in and then it's uh, And then it's like okay, so here's the switch That (laughs) you can't do that It's complicated complicated. What can I say? The Jew is alone. The Jew is alone and unique, and it's a little bit weird. But you know what? It's what makes us us, and there's a lot of depth and a lot of beauty. Balaam, whether he liked it or not, whether he saw it or not, to his truth, he said it. He said it. He got up on that mountaintop with his uh, employer. Very awkward. Can you imagine that tension over there? It's like, I'm paying you for this. It's like... <laughs> I love the Jewish people. I wish I were one of them. Like, oh my, what are you doing? Bro, you're the bad guy. Don't, don't you know whose side you're on? You're the villain. But Balaam is saying, am this nation dwells alone. They don't reckon with others. They don't need to check in with the world. You know, it's like, you know, like people like lick their finger and they like hold their, Finger up to the wind, like, which way is the wind blowing? That's never been a Jewish thing. If Jews ever did that, this none of this exists right now. The fact that we're here studying Torah, 30, it's, it's a crazy number, 3,000. Show me anyone that's studying anything for 3,300 years. No one. The fact that we're still doing that means that consistently, unbroken, for all of us here, pretty much, Our predecessors made the choice, despite whatever winds were blowing, to say, I don't care, I'm staying here. That's a crazy level of commitment. And yeah, maybe for a generation or two, kind of like, yeah, maybe it got a little loose or whatever it is. But we're all here right now. We're literally right here in this moment studying Torah. And that's an amazing testament to not care so much about what's going on. We are a nation that stands alone. We are not reckoned among the others. What that means is we don't need to take a popularity poll to figure out what stance we should take. We don't need to consult the media or consult Hollywood or ask the actors and actors what they what's their opinion on stuff and maybe that's, that should be our opinion. We don't need to consult a political party. We have our Torah. We have our document. We have our faith in God. We have our leaders. We know what we know. We know what our values are. It's an in- incredible strength. Imagine being in a hurricane and you and everything else is blowing and you're anchored. And you're just like, you're just, you're, you're solid in place. That's Judaism. That's the anchor of Judaism, the anchor of Torah. If we choose to latch on, if we choose to carabiner, car- carib- carabiner, carabiner, carabiner? Is this a word? I'm sure I'm making up stuff. It's like those little hooks, right? You hook carabiner. Hook up. Hook on. Latch on. Latch on to Torah's anchor. And all the winds in the world, even ocean winds, will not blow you away. Anyway, that's it for today. Hope you enjoyed. Um, Hope it was meaningful. And we're on tomorrow. Remember, Balaam tries to curse three times. Strike one, strike two, strike three. All three times, he is unsuccessful. So, and then the and then a fourth time, he launches into a blessing that's uh, unsolicited. So, stay tuned for the rest of this week as we go through all of these incredible readings. We have uh, sessions Thursday and Friday. There's so much to talk about, so join me. Oh, and also tonight. Tonight is going to be one of those classes that will be for the, for the history books. Tonight, we're going to finally deal with a question that's come up countless times. I, I mean, countless times throughout the classes over the years, this question has come up. it's a, it's a great question. And the question is, were Jews Jewish before Sinai? Was Moses Jewish? Was Moses' wife Jewish? He married a, a girl from, from Moab, a Moabite girl. Was she Jewish? Was he Jewish? Was Abraham Jewish? When did Jews become Jewish? Did they convert? Was there a conversion that happened? Did they not need conversion? Like, what's the, what's the whole, how do we understand how Jews became Jewish and when that happened? A fundamental class. And the fundamentals of, of Judaism and identity and the lessons that we can all learn for ourselves in 2022, that is all happening tonight at 7.30. Torah Studies, be there. Or be square. Well, okay, you don't have to be square, but be there. <laughs> in person or live on Zoom. And on my desk, I already have loaded up the black and white cookies, all from Trader Joe. And... Was the babka upside down? It's so random. And the Brooklyn babka. Trader Joe's Chocolate Brooklyn Babka from Monrovia, California. No, I'm kidding. It's from it's from Brooklyn. Okay. Good. We'll see y'all. Uh, see y'all later and or tomorrow. Take care. Have a wonderful day. Enjoy Joy and Sarah and Sandrine. See you guys. Take Thank care. You. Pleasure, pleasure. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. As always, you can find us online at inTownJewishAcademy.org and on YouTube at Intown Jewish Academy. New episodes of the podcast come out a few times a week. If you don't want to miss a single episode, then hit the subscribe button. If you enjoyed today's episode, please take a moment to leave a rating or review. It means a lot to me and it helps other people find the podcast. Thanks so much for listening